Welcome to this Jeremy Bamber and White House Farm podcast. This week's episode is the second part of the two-part discussion series in relation to the recent Mindhouse programme, The Bamber's Murder at the Farm, screened on Sky Crime. This week, campaign team members Yvonne Hartley and Emma Morris continue highlighting how many of the participants to the programme relied on their own opinions and speculations to reach conclusions about the case. This includes how Sheila Caffell's friends asserted she'd never hurt the children, which is contrary to reports made by Sheila's psychiatrist, Dr Ferguson, and social services, who'd been involved in the care of Sheila, Nicholas and Daniel. The claims made by Brett Collins are challenged, and we discuss the probable reasons why he's only recently been vocal about Jeremy in the case. Also raised is the fact that Brett himself was implicated by Julie Mugford, a fact that he may be unaware of. The discussion also features just some of the evidence Mindhouse failed to mention in the programme. We pick up the discussion here with Emma. Another question I have, there were, there were some of Sheila's friends that appeared on the programme um, and they asserted that Sheila would never have hurt her boys. Yeah, um, that's quite troubling really because even evidence at trial was that her psychiatrist said that, you know, it was a possibility. I mean, there are incidents with Sheila, one in particular, where the police were involved when Nicholas fell out of a taxi in 1983, caused him to be hospitalised for two days, and social workers and the police were involved in that. So if that was just a fall from a taxi, I'm not so sure why there would be so much social worker involvement in that. A moving taxi, or he just fell out the door? Well, apparently it was a moving taxi, but London cabs, I thought, could only be open from the outside and you have thought and child wouldn't be able to open the taxi door. Mm. So I don't really know how it occurred. That sounds quite troubling, doesn't it? But, but I mean, more importantly, um, the trial evidence of Sheila's psychiatrist, Dr Ferguson, uh, he even said that Sheila was completely of the belief she could project evil onto others, including the children. And he gave evidence that one of her thoughts was, and I quote, very disturbingly, she was at risk of having to have sex with them, Nicholas and Daniel, or to join with them in some violence. He went on to detail that Sheila considered that Nicholas would grow up to be a woman hater or a murderer. But he also gave evidence that in her discharge letter that he wrote in the March 1985, that there was a measure of her doing violence to her children and that she had a great deal of morbid thoughts, which he concluded were abnormal, frightening, disturbed, and in a sense, irrational. So he made it very clear. His words were, I'll repeat them, there was also a measure of her doing violence to her children. So he obviously considered that it was a possibility. Mm. You know, and he also wrote a letter to Sheila's GP in going back to 1983. This is on the first hospitalization. And he said in the letter, I made mention of her unease about her reactions to the twins and that she was capable of murdering them or communicating some ability 
for them to become evil or murderers at a later date. Wow. So, I mean, the psychiatrist, all right, he saw Sheila when she was at her lowest and during psychotic episodes, but he's very clear that he thought she was capable of doing violence to her children. So, you know, friends aren't necessarily going to see that side to it. Do people act differently with the friends? Do they act differently? You know, I mean, have you any control over your thoughts and emotions when you're having a psychotic episode? I don't really think that you do. No. You know, but no, the psychiatrist no. was obviously very worried. And, and I mean, I'm sure, you know, she had periods of time where she was well and, and clearly loved her boys. Absolutely. Well, obviously, she loved the boys. I mean, the boys were the centre of her world, but she didn't have the capability. I mean, we've a lot of witnesses who said she just wasn't capable of looking as she should have. I mean, Freddie himself, Freddie, who was Sheila's friend, his statement on the 8th of August said, during Sheila's psychotic episode in the March, I became extremely concerned for my own safety. I was extremely scared for everybody's safety. And the children were in the flat that night. And Colin's letter to Neville is very revealing. Because in that letter, he said, I have been called aside a couple of times in the last term by their ch teacher, children's teacher, who has expressed serious concerns for their progress and welfare. They have been dropping far behind the rest of the class their behaviour has been erratic and moody. They have lack of self-motivation, which is most unusual in Tucson Brat. She, the teacher, was also worried that their frequent and acute lateness was causing them to miss out a lot through missing the beginning of the day. I was unaware of this until recently when my mother informed me that the boys have told her that on most days they had to dress themselves and fetch their own breakfast and then attempt to wake mummy up to take them to school. This sort of thing should not be happening to five-year-olds. Wow. I mean, you know, that's just, that's Colin Fell's own words. And Sheila was rapidly declining. She was incapable of giving the children the love and care that they needed, no matter how much she loved them, her illness was preventing them from caring for them in the way that she should have done. Yeah. Well, was there something about burn marks on, on um, was it Nicholas's cheek or Daniel's cheek? Is there something to do with burn marks? Yes, there were uh, burn marks on one of the children's cheeks. That came from Michael Abel, who was the head of Camden Social Services. And I can read what he actually said. It was uh, the minutes from a meeting which he actually then gave in a witness statement. And he was explaining that at this meeting, there was reference to the time, there was a scald on the left knee and the stomach of Daniel, who also had an ear infection. And it was mentioned that there was a burn on Daniel's cheek. Sheila was described as being forgetful and disorganized. Even Suzette Ford, who was Jeremy's girlfriend at the time, gave evidence that Freddie had told her that Sheila had been physically violent towards the boys. Uh, he spoke a lot about them, especially after having Sheila with the twins and having seen her be violent towards them. And Freddie told her that she used to punch them directly in the face. 
<laughs> that's in her witness statement. So it's coming from a lot of different sources, this is information. It's not from one source, you've got social workers and everything. And I mean, even Colin Cafell's girlfriend gave evidence that Sheila was leaving hammers and things about in the house and that she had no, though she was very loving towards them, but didn't seem to realise that items would be dangerous in the presence of the boys. Yeah. I mean, I mean, she was ill, bless her, but she couldn't look after the children. No, and I think it, it, it's admirable of her friends to want to go on the programme and, and support Sheila and, and stand up for her, but, but ultimately you've got statements from social services, other friends, a psychiatrist, um, exactly. All, I'm all sure saying. when Sheila was was well and when she was medicated correctly, that she was different than when she wasn't taking the medication because she used to refuse to take it. She used to forget to take it. That's why they changed it onto injection. But I mean, she was seriously under medicated at the time of the tragedy. So dose had been reduced from. 200 milligrams every two weeks to 100 milligrams every month. That's seriously under-medicating somebody. Sheila was due her next injection at the time of the tragedies, and all that has got to impact on it. And plus, she had cannabis in her system when they did toxicology testing on them and drugs testing. So it's well known that cannabis interferes with the effect of antipsychotic medication. Much as the friend's probably saw a different side to Sheila and, yeah. and it, it wasn't her fault. No. We would never say it was her fault. Jeremy wouldn't say it was her fault. No, no. Spiraling, spiraling, spiraling further into her psychosis, which ultimately ended in such tragic events. But I yeah. mean, it wasn't even explored on the programme, so everybody's left to think that this didn't happen when it actually did. It was quite, what I did find quite interesting um, though on the programme that, that that was at least some sort of positive was I think it was um, Barbara Wilson did mention, um, and this supports Jeremy's version of events that some, there was discussions with Sheila and it was getting a little bit heated around um, obviously foster care and that type of thing. And she, she did say that she did, I think interrupted an argument feeling wasn't it that something was going on so you know that that in itself also supports Jeremy's version of events that there was a discussion going on uh, and she had interrupted interrupted that yeah well she said that Neville was very curt on the phone and she didn't want to talk to him when she'd rung about a bicycle to prepare for one of the children but I mean that's another area that was never explored is a foster care issue because We've got statements from foster carers. They weren't full-time foster carers. They were day foster carers. So when Sheila was struggling, they were sort of like day-long babysitters, if you will. They looked after the children while Sheila was busy doing what she needed to do or was at work or trying to get a job, things like that. So when they were in her care, in the, these day foster carers did look after them. Sheila was struggling, and even Colin Cafell's mother said she'd spoken to June about the possibility of the children going into foster care again. But at the trial, the jury are told 
There's only, this has only come from Jeremy Bamber. Nobody else has mentioned this. There's no way the family would have put the children into foster care. But again, yeah. misinterpretation. It wasn't full time, 24 hour day, seven day a week foster care. It was day foster care. That's slightly confusing because I thought that um, DSI Ainsley had um, told the DPP that the only source of foster care had, had come from Jeremy and everybody else said it was uh, an outrageous suggestion or, you know, nobody would have ever considered that and certainly Colin wouldn't have allowed it. So he, he said that, yeah, he got, he'd got a variety of statements from foster carers and social services confirming that they'd had foster care in the past. He certainly had by the time of his second report, which was in, in November 1985, uh, he certainly had all these statements, but they were handwritten. And so because the statement's handwritten, it's only given to the defence once it's been typed up. So the defence didn't have access to those statements, didn't know they existed. It was only in 2011 when we thought, what's all these statements from these foster carers? And I mean, Jeremy remembered some of the foster carers. He, he knew them, he'd been to the, with Sheila to take the children from time to time. So he knew they existed, but yet Ainsley's giving this impression that this has only come from Jeremy in capital letters on reports to the DPP to emphasize it, when in fact he knew that foster care had been in place, that Colin Caffell's mother was aware that foster care was an issue. He had her statement, but... So, so Ainsley essentially lied to the DPP? He misled the, the DPP. Whether he intent, well, and of course he intentionally lied, he capitalised it and he had the statements. So what else can it be except to lie? Yeah. So Brett Collins appeared on the, um, the documentary. He was friends with Jeremy at the time, wasn't he? He was, yes. Um, and so he said something quite interesting around, um, which I've, I've never heard before, that Jeremy, when he went to New Zealand, he um, had £5,000 and he lost that on, on a drug deal. So, and just to make it clear, we don't have any evidence in the case file surrounding this because it was kind of an out of the blue accusation but we did feel it was right to give Jeremy a right to reply to that so Absolutely. what did Jeremy say about about this um this drug deal gone wrong well this is the first time I'd ever heard of it as well I mean Brett's been in numerous interviews and and he's I've never heard him say this before so I asked Jeremy and he thought it was laughable he said it did not happen he said, I don't know what else to say, really. It just did not happen. He would never have done a, a drug deal to begin with. And he certainly wouldn't have wasted £5,000. So £5,000 was a lot of money. And he, he just laughed because there's just no truth in it whatsoever. It's just been an, an allegation made by Brett, whether he's made it up, just to sound... You really elaborate, I don't know, but... You know, I didn't mean, elaborate that, on what they just said it was a drug deal that went wrong, but well, what do you mean? What, what, what? Well, exactly. <laughs> How did it go wrong? I mean, what happened? I mean, expand on it. If you're going to come out with something new like that, expand on it. But it's like with the holiday in Saint Tropez. I mean, Rhett made it sound like it was all a jolly jolly going nightclubbing and having this jolly old time. He didn't say 
that it was in a caravan that cost them 80 quid for the for the time they were there. He could have done. Oh, right, okay. He chose not to. So he knows they were in a caravan. So why doesn't he say that? You know, oh, it's, just, it's like when he's polishing his Porsche car, isn't it? And saying, oh, well, Jeremy would have want one of these. And Jeremy did once mention to a police officer about getting a Porsche car. Yes, it was just a conversation, which the police officer actually started trying to distract Jeremy at the scene from what was going on and all this commotion that was happening. So he just broke me, oh, oh what sort of car have you got? What car would you like? Just engaging him in conversation. The car in question was actually a kit car. So it wasn't whether much Porsche costs, I don't know, but it was a kit car. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing how things get twisted and turned to suit, doesn't it? But I mean, Brett Collins probably has his own agenda. I mean, obviously they're going to get paid for doing these sort of programmes. They're not going to come forward from the goodness of their heart, are they? So I should imagine that the majority of people in that programme receive a financial incentive to do so. And probably Brett Collins needed that financial incentive because it's probably a, not a very well-known fact but he's been in trouble quite a lot with the police in New Zealand for car crimes. So in 2016 was the last time he was on a, a charge related to cars where he was illegally trading motor vehicles. And this was the sixth time he'd been in trouble for it. And on that occasion, he was fined $50,000. So oh, the dear. time before that was three years previously and he was fined $30,000. So his six car crimes offences against him and he's there polishing the Porsche. So that just made me giggle because it's like, really, is this another car crime offence that's going to pop up soon on the internet? But they're all, they're all there on the internet. I mean, it's not, we're not inventing that. People search, they'll find it. It's there, just do a Google search. Uh, so not necessarily the uh, the credible participant as he as he appeared. It was interesting. He, he did talk about um, Julie Mugford, didn't he, on on the program? And it is uh, quite an ironic story that you you might have to tell on on that side of things because he said there's more to her than meets the eye. If only he knew. Well, he also said as well, didn't he, that he believed that Jeremy would have paid a hitman, which even yeah. brings this uh, more ironic. So in 2002, Julie was interviewed by the Canadian police for the 2002 appeal. She was later brought to the country, but she didn't give evidence at the, at the appeal. But she, DC Cowell of the Metropolitan Police thought that um, one piece of evidence she gave was very worthy of note. And they were his words. And I shall quote what D.C. Carroll included in his statement. He said, Julie Smachansky was asked, Susan Battersby states that you told her about Brett Collins being possibly involved in violent crime in New Zealand. Julie said, Jeremy told me that Brett had used a baseball bat to kill somebody because they owed money. They lived together in both Australia, Sydney and New Zealand but the offences were in New Zealand. And I believe Brett's brother was dealing in drugs in Europe 
and I was led to believe that Brett, through his brother, could get fake passports to allow him to move about. Julie was then asked if Jeremy could have confided in Brett, and she said, Yes, I believe Brett was consulted prior to the murders. That was my gut feeling. His arrival before the murders was bizarre, and his return afterwards. He turned up suddenly. I feel that when Brett turned up, Jeremy changed. I did not like Brett, and it was a mutual dislike. I went to London when Brett was around. It's subjective, but he was not a nice man. Money and lifestyle were important to him. He had a crush on Jeremy. It was more than a friendship in my estimation. For me, I've got no real evidence, but I feel sure he was involved. So, this allegation that Julie Mugford made in 2002 was that she felt sure that Brett was involved in the murders with Jeremy. And did they, did they tell anybody? Did they say anything? Does Brett Collins know that she said that? I very much doubt it. Oh, wow. It'd be great for him to, to hear that and, um, and respond to, to what she said, really, wouldn't it? Well, it certainly will, and it's all documented in the case documents. And so, and the uh, DC court felt it was of utmost importance that he actually passed that on to, mm. to the police in charge. So, you know, they, they obviously thought something about it. I mean, nothing was done. Brett wasn't questioned about it. So they probably knew it was just another lie of Mugford's, but... Yeah. Yeah, well, that, well, that's it. I mean, it's, it, you know, again, it, it's it's just another, we've had views, you know, David Bowflower um, changing their stories over time. Julie Mugford's no different. Exactly, but can you imagine this is now the third man she's implicated for yeah. the murders? So we've got Matthew MacDonald, who was the so-called hitman. We've got Jeremy, who she want, she if she couldn't have him, nobody else was going to have him. And now we've got Brett Collins. She's trying to implicate them all. That's three men who had no involvement whatsoever with the murders who could be in all in jail, as it is, Jeremy is. But I think Brett Collins and Matthew McDonald's had a very lucky escape, to be honest. I was going to say they've been, they've been pretty lucky not to get caught up in it. Absolutely. The documentary talked about the News of the World deal with Julie Mugford, where they would pay her £25,000 for her story. They seem to miss something extremely important out of the documentary about that particular deal, didn't they? Can you they expand did. what that was? Yeah, they've, what they neglected to say was that the £25,000 was only payable if it was a guilty verdict. So... I mean, what further incentive does somebody need? The deal was in place because um, James Weatherup himself, who was connected with this story in the News of the World, who spoke on the programme, said that they wanted that at all costs. They were determined they were getting Julian Mugford. And he actually admitted that talks were taking place well before the trial. He did say some would take place during the trial and after the trial as well. But the news of the world's discussions and them 
um, agreement with Julie Mugford was made with her solicitor prior to the trial. So they only wanted this interview on a guilty verdict. It wouldn't have been such a powerful interview and certainly not in the News of the World remit if Jeremy was innocent. They wouldn't but, have been but, interested. Okay, but surely the jury were informed fully of this deal? It was raised in closed court. Um, it was oh, tried, yes, they tried to establish, the judge tried, it was raised with the court, with the judge, if this contract had been signed prior to the trial. Well, obviously it had been because they all knew about it, but yet nothing was done about it. So that's contempt of court. As far as I'm concerned, she had reward money if her former boyfriend was convicted. But so not only did she get immunity from prosecution with Essex Police for all her crimes, so that included assisting Jeremy with the burglary at the caravan site, a minimum of 13 checkbook offences, because a check guarantee card only was for £50. So and total nearly £900 of checkbook offences. Um, so she was guilty of fraud. She was guilty of drug charges. She smuggled drugs from Canada before she knew Jeremy and yet was given immunity from all these if she turned Crown evidence. She was then offered reward money of £25,000, I call it reward money, if he was found guilty. She's a 21-year-old. You know, £25,000 was a heck of a lot of money in 1985. It's a lot of money now. So the jury were not aware that she was going to receive £25,000 upon a guilty verdict? No, they weren't. Okay, so the judge basically said to the jury, um, you either well, believe... Well, it wasn't mentioned to the jury at all. No, what I mean is the judge said to the jury, you either believe Julie or you believe Jeremy. If you believe Julie, then Jeremy's guilty. If you believe exactly. Jeremy, um, then he's not guilty. Exactly. That, and, and, that is absolutely crazy that, that the jury would not be told of such a financial incentive when they are having to decide on the honesty of this prosecution witness. That's, exactly. That's, they were the only thing they were told was that she was given a caution for drug offences. She wasn't given a caution, she was given complete immunity from all criminal charges. I mean, she wanted to be a teacher, she would not have been able to pursue that career had these criminal charges been on her record. Keep you keep your record clear. Make sure your ex-boyfriend that nobody else is going to have you if I can't have you, attitude. So that was sorted. Her career was sorted. She had money in her pocket on which she put towards a flat in London. I mean, her future was bright, wasn't it? Well, very bright. Uh, and what, what concerns me, again, going back to the documentary, is that such a pertinent point around the £25,000 payment and the deal being done before she gave her evidence, what, they, didn't, they didn't mention that. How, how is that a balanced view if they don't mention something, actually, that's so, so important? Exactly. Particularly that it would only be payable on a guilty verdict. Yeah. I mean, that's crucial evidence, um, you know, because they made it appear to sound like this was done after the trial had finished, she decided to go and give them an interview. It wasn't like that at all. It was already arranged.
you know, so her incentive was she's got to convince the jury that Jeremy's guilty. I mean, the police knew she'd lied in witness statements. The of police course. knew. I mean, this brings me back to something that um, David Beaufort said that Jeremy was selling everything, you know, and, and jewelry and things like that. Because in her statements, Ju Julie said that when Jeremy had been abroad, he'd stolen jewelry from jeweler shops, from these Cartier watches. So the police had already established that the Hitman had an alibi, so that that was complete nonsense. So they went and seized these Cartier watches, got the serial numbers off the back of them, checked it out with the shop in New Zealand, and lo and behold, there's the entry, the serial numbers of the watches sold to Jeremy Bamber, the date and the price, all locked down, all bought and paid for. Another lie, you see, she said in a statement. So, but yeah, they had to depict her at trial. If they wanted the conviction, Julie had to be the immaculate character that Jeremy Bamber had corrupted and basically the sun shone out of her like, I don't know. They, they couldn't risk her being seen as anything other than credible, quiet little girl who'd been corrupted by this nasty Bamber. And there was no truth in it whatsoever. But then to be rewarded at the end of it is just despicable. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, as you said earlier, Mindhouse were given access to the new evidence. And um, unfortunately, they seem to miss pretty much all of it out. For example, scratch marks. Scratch marks under the mattress. Yeah, they were they were even raised. I mean, the scratch marks the police said were caused during a fight in the kitchen. They said between uh, Jeremy and Neville with the silencer on the rifle. We can now prove that scratch marks weren't even there on the day that they were done a long time after the incident, but they didn't choose to talk about that, and they could have done. That's a shame. That's a shame. This is quite damning stuff. Um, windows, access. Access and entry through the windows. Uh, yeah. Yes, well, uh, there is a podcast coming shortly about this. So we can now prove that, I mean, the police said Jeremy entered the house through the downstairs bathroom window and exited through the kitchen window and that the kitchen window latch was at a seven o'clock position. So he could have got it to that position by banging it from the outside. So numerous it tests- the appearance that, that it was locked from the inside, you mean? Gave the appearance it was locked from the inside. We'll go into much detail in the podcast we do about this, but basically we can undermine that in its entirety. So we can prove there were no damage to the shower room window, which later materialized weeks later. We can prove that they were, the jury were completely misled about the captures on the kitchen window, but obviously it goes into a lot of detail and so we'll talk about that in a specific podcast. Okay, um, next issue was the evidence that Sheila was alive inside the house for hours after Jeremy had arrived and was um, in the company of several police officers. I cannot quite believe that this whole area was omitted from this programme. What can I? Because was this a decision that was taken by Manhouse not 
deliberately to show this evidence because it's categoric and they had access to it. The mm. lights were going on and off, curtains were opening and closing, that a rifle was seen in the window just before the raid team entered the house, that Sheila had been in conversation with officers at the scene, and most importantly, that a 999 call was made from within the house at nine minutes past six in the morning, which resulted in two ambulances being called to the scene, one for immediate use and one on standby. I mean, this is massively important evidence because all this time, while all this activity is going on in the house, Jamie's standing with police officers. So it's massively important. We have actually done three podcasts on this issue, which are available. So all the evidence is explained in those in detail. So for those of you interested in the truth, please listen to those um, because they give you all the facts about these different circumstances that we can now show Sheila was alive, the police knew she was alive, and that's been covered up. So I just found it incredible the, it wasn't raised in the programme. And they're the mini alibi series of the podcast, aren't they? They are, they're a mini, mini alibi series. There are three of them. Yeah. Uh, just on that 999 call, because like you say, it's incredible that that wasn't mentioned in the in the documentary at all did eric allison from the guardian contact the police officer who received that call at some point and asked him about it he did yes he contacted him about three years ago well we knew his name we knew it was called nicholas milbank eric mm -hmm. managed to find him and he asked him he showed him the documentation we have and he said to him did you take this 999 call from within White House Farm at 6.09 a.m. And former PC Milbank said, if that's what the document says, then that's what I did. And refused to speak anymore. Wow. What can you and do? You know, hopefully he'll be interviewed by the Criminal Cases Review Commission about that. But they so, have got all the evidence. It's just unreal, isn't it? It is, it is. Okay. Um, Next issue, two silencers. How was that not included in the documentary, Yvonne? I know, because all that we have banged on about for all the five years we were with the CPS and the approach that we made to them, for five years and a year since, that we've been banging on about the evidence we've got that two silencers were forensically tested. The two silences were recovered from the scene, one by the police on the day, which is all documented, and one by David Beauflower on the 10th of August. How that was not mentioned when it's the crux of the case is silencers or sound moderators, however you want to refer to them. I just, I'm beyond words as to why that wasn't included. Obviously, yeah. you know, the. They, they must have had the agenda that they weren't going to show any of this evidence that categorically proves that the jury were misled because the jury were told there was one silencer with blood and paint in it. They weren't told there were two silencers and then this evidence, blood on one, paint on another, which wasn't there originally, was then conflated together to then become a miraculous new sound moderator with a whole new reference number what the jury were told about. 
just absolutely ridiculous. And why that wasn't mentioned, it can only mean that they had an agenda not to show evidence. Yeah. As we suspected and as we were told. And moving on sort of quite nicely, then onto the DNA. DNA. In 2002, DNA caused Jeremy's appeal because it had been established after a long fight to be able to get hold of silences to test them for DNA and managed to succeed. And it was established that Sheila's DNA was not in the silencer. But at the Court of Appeal, they said that just because her DNA wasn't in the silencer didn't mean that her blood never had been and it could have all been swapped away with the various testing over the years, which is completely wrong anyway, because we now know DNA has advanced even further now. This is almost 20 years ago. DNA has advanced. It is so stable that it doesn't matter if the blood, they can get DNA from a breath. They can get DNA from touching something. So if your blood's been in something, the, the DNA is going to be there. DNA is very stable and very robust and would have still been there had Sheila's blood been in the silencer. But something that people may not be aware of is that unknown male DNA was found. So it wasn't Jeremy's, because he took a buckle swab off, swab off Jeremy. It wasn't Anthony Partridge's. It wasn't Neville Bamber's. They obtained all their DNA. But there was mm. an unknown male DNA. They didn't ask David Beauflar, and they didn't ask Robert Beauflar for DNA samples. Can we just clarify who found the silencer for us again? Yeah. David found the silencer. Bob found one of them. And Robert Belfry was his father and he was there when it was found. So they could have quite easily <laughs> gone to them and said, can you provide your DNA for elimination purposes? But why this is so significant is at the trial, the jury were told that the blood in the silencer matched and it's not just blood, it's enzyme groups as well. But they were told that it matched Sheila and only Sheila. They were not told that it also matched Jeremy's uncle, Robert Bellflower, exactly. Why not? What's Robert Bellflower's DNA in the silencer? What's that his DNA? What's that his blood? We don't know. This could have all been resolved 20 years ago. But nobody, nobody got his DNA. It was never tested. And the fact remains that Sheila's DNA was not found. Sheila's DNA was not found in an unknown male's was, and they both had identical blood and enzyme groups. So Sheila's so, DNA was the way that miraculously the male unknown male's DNA that didn't get swapped away then. Oh no, that wasn't swapped Only away. Sheila's. Only oh. Sheila's, which. It's just incredible, isn't it? It's, it's just it's even further, yeah. you know, manipulation of the facts. It's even more, they set out with an agenda. I don't, I don't know why when they're faced with evidence that's so strong that they have to try to, well, obviously, they, the Crown want to try to undermine it. They want to maintain this conviction. But the evidence is Jeremy is not involved in this whatsoever. And they've got cast iron evidence there about Sheila's DNA not being present, an unknown male's being present, 
they knew at the appeal about the two blood groups and nothing was done. Nothing was done. It's not about the truth, is it? It's beyond wicked. Absolutely yeah. beyond wicked. I mean, this, the, the quote from the judge was that Jeremy was evil beyond belief. That's so wrong because it's the Essex Police, it's the Forensic Science Service, it's the City of London Police, it's the Metropolitan Police that are evil beyond belief to maintain a conviction of an obviously innocent man. Save their own skin. Exactly. But the case is now back with the Criminal Vet Cases Review Commission with all this evidence and a lot more. You know, I can only give you the evidence we're allowed to talk about at the moment. We do have a lot more that isn't yet in the public domain. Fantastic. Okay, one last um, issue then, uh, inheritance. The inheritance issue wasn't mentioned whatsoever, was it? So as far as the programme was concerned, it was Jeremy that was going to inherit all the land, the farms, the assets, everything. And it's like, that's why he did this crime, because he was greedy and he was going to be the... Yeah, they, put, they really portrayed him as, as a, you know, money mad. Um, they really did. I... They really did. But again, the one person who, who was not even named in that programme was Uncle Robert Bowflower. So what yeah. people may not realise is that on the 24th of August, this is before Jeremy's a suspect in the eyes of the police, only in the eyes of the relatives, Robert Bowflower went to see his solicitor to have an in-issue clause removed from Jeremy's grandmother's will. Now that meant, an in-issue clause meant that if the parent, so June was named in Mabel's will, Mabel was yeah. Jeremy's grandmother. June was na named with Pamela, her sister, as beneficiaries of her estate when anything happened to her. But there were in-issue clauses, which meant that anything happened to June, that inheritance passed in, down the line to her children, which was Sheila and Jeremy. Yeah. So he sought to have that removed and the, he did succeed in that. And on the 3rd of September, a new will was signed in which all the money, all the assets, all the property, all the land went to his wife, Pamela Bellflower. Just to be clear on it, so by removing Jeremy as the beneficiary of um, the, the Speakman estate, as, as he was, because obviously June, June had passed away, as, as had Sheila, Yeah. Uh, what they did was they removed Jeremy, so the Bamba estate then went to Mabel, who was very old at the time, and then when Mabel died, it then all went to Pamela. Yeah, that that's correct. That's correct. In December uh, 1985, probate went through on Neville's and June's estates, which the beneficiary was Mabel, the grandmother. Yeah. So Sheila's estate also went to the grandmother. Uh, Sheila died in this intestate. She didn't have a will, but mm -hmm. all the money went as the next of kin to her grandmother. And when her grandmother died uh, in February 1986, her probate went through in July 1986. So therefore, by the time of the trial, it was all in place, Pamela Bowflower, to collect the grandmother's estate Neville's, June's and Sheila's and Jeremy would not get a penny 
Now, if he'd have been found not guilty, then he would have been able to contest that and he would have been able to get his rightful inheritance. But for them to maintain um, that inheritance and to, and to keep it all for themselves, they had to ensure that Jeremy got a guilty verdict. And the jury, you know, weren't all too happy with Robert Balfour. They did ask a question. And that yeah. question was, Jeremy Bambo was found to be guilty and convicted, and he was locked away for, in prison for a lot of years. Who would inherit the estates? Would it be his uncle and his family? And would that have given them motive to lie? Now, he wrote an immediate response at the request of the police to the jury and to the judge, obviously, that said that he was a wealthy man within his own right and he didn't stand to inherit anything. Well, excuse me, mate, you, your wife's already inherited it all, so that, yeah, you are a wealthy man in your own right via your wife. Yeah. Who's going to inherit all these massive estates that are worth well in excess of a million pounds when you've got all four estates. And then the, the inferring that Jeremy committed a crime because he was greedy. Oh, there you no. go. No, I mean, we've got evidence themselves, you know, what we said previously about them taking items from the house. I mean, it's obviously money. And, and I'm quite happy if they want to come and challenge me about it and say that's not true. Fine, because I'm, I've got their witness statements and there they say it. Yeah, so I'm absolutely. quite willing to show them their own witness statements. You know, that, that's actually a good point, Yvonne. Um, you know, we've, we've talked about some of the people that appeared on the, on the documentary and um, we've, we're doing a right to reply now um, in response absolutely. to some of Absolutely. So it's probably only right and fair because of the things that we've said in this podcast that we, we extend that invitation to David Bowflower, Ainsley, Buse, West, if they would like to come and talk to us. Um, anybody. Anyone, anyone from the, yeah, from the programme that would like to yeah. talk about anything that we've discussed about them specifically, we, you know, we, we feel that's right and fair that we give them that opportunity to reply to us. Absolutely. And challenge us on what, on what we've said. So Absolutely. We, and I mean, we can show them the evidence we've discussed. As we've said, everything is documented. You know, we're not speculating, we're not making this up. We're not jumping to conclusions like it's not opinionated. It's all documented evidence from witness statements, note cards, police reports, everything that was provided to the defence in 2011. So it's from that documentation that we can be so assured in what we are saying. And it's, it's really important. And I think we, we mentioned earlier around the um, issue that Brett, raised about the, the drug deal we don't we, we made it clear we don't have any evidence of that we only have Jeremy's word but we don't take Jeremy's word for things because all people will say if we did that words well of course he's going to say that so exactly there's no point in us in us doing that is there exactly and I mean the thing is we we're a campaign for the truth and the truth has to be factual and so where do we get the facts from from the case material we've spent 11 years sifting through that case material, all these thousands and thousands of documents in order to establish the truth. And if anybody wants to challenge us on it, we can show them the evidence. We've, we've, no, we've nothing to hide. No, absolutely. 
so to end, end then, that is um, a, an invitation to David Bowflower, former DSI Ainsley, former PS Views, uh, former PC West. I think that's it. If they would like to come and talk Brett to us. Collins, if you Brett want Collins. Brett Collins as well. Yeah, if they'd yeah. like to talk to us. And um, we'd, we'd be more than happy to, to talk to them. Absolutely, we would. Well, thank you so much for having this discussion with me, Emma. I think people will be surprised at the facts that we have. And I think we, we definitely had a right to reply. I uh, feel like we needed to do this for the, the sake of justice because it, it was just so one-sided. Well, I believe it was very one-sided was the programme with all the evidence that was missing. But I'd also like to thank on behalf of the campaign team on behalf of Jeremy, everybody who has supported us throughout all these years, but particularly in the last few weeks. Now we've got submissions in at the Criminal Case Review Commission. It is quite a tense time, quite frustrating while we're waiting, especially when programmes are now being broadcast on television. But please all listen to our podcast. Please all listen to our recent interview with Sean Atwood. Please all follow us on Twitter, check the website. We will keep you fully informed of everything that's happening in the case as it's happening. Please join our Facebook group for supporters and you will then be invited to our monthly meetings with case experts, forensic experts, legal experts and ourselves who will delve deeper into more of the evidence. And just thank you all again. You're all amazing. And everyone who supports us and Jeremy, we can't thank you enough. So thank you very much and we'll see you all very soon. Bye. Bye. You can join our monthly Facebook meetings, which have a first look at case material, presentations and guest speakers at our official Facebook, Jeremy Bamber Justice Group.